0: Podcastle, episode 392, for December 1st, 2015. The Ladies Made, by Carly Hall Jensen. Rated R.
1: Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Kefi Curley, editor and host of Glittership. The grass is always greener on the other side. We're all plenty used to hearing that phrase, often to shut down whichever complaint we're trying to make. Sometimes it's a fair cop, and we are just assuming that if we move to another location, things will automatically be better. I recently moved from Seattle to Long Island, so I recognize a little bit of that in my various disappointments. There is a flip side to this, though, which is the idea that nothing, anywhere, could ever be better than what we have in the present. Of course, when presented with such an extremely apathetic perspective, it's worthwhile to wonder, is it due to a sort of depressive realism, or does the person you're speaking with have their own reasons for staying put? Podcastle is very proud to present The Lady's Maid, written by Carly Hall Jensen, originally published in Fantasy Magazine's Queers Destroy Fantasy. This episode is being released at the same time as the Queers Destroy Fantasy launch, so if you enjoy the story, you should check out the rest of the double-sized fantasy issue. Carly Hall Jensen was born on a Wednesday. Since then, her fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Penalty Boss, Shimmer, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Ristlet, Underwater New York, Lightspeed, and Fairy Tale Review. She holds an M.A. in folklore from Indiana University Bloomington and an M.F.A. in fiction from the University of Maryland College Park. She is also one of the editors of The Golden Key, an online journal of speculative writing. Our narrator today is Kim Laken Smith. Kim Lakin-Smith is a science fiction and dark fantasy author. Kim's short stories feature an inner zone, black static, behind-the-sofa celebrity memories of Doctor Who, Best British Fantasy 2013, Shark Punk, The Mammoth Book of Dieselpunk, and more. She is the author of gothic science fantasy Tourniquet and YA novels Queen Rat and Autodrome. Her novel, Cyber Circus, was shortlisted for both the BSFA Best Novel and British Fantasy Award for Best Novel 2012. With a background in dance and performance, she has narrated stories for Dark Fiction Magazine, Word punk, Tales to Terrify, Pseudopod, and of course, Podcastle. Her novella, Asanath, will feature in the forthcoming anthology Fight Like a Girl from Crystal Inc. Publishing, and is a standalone story set in the Cyber Circus universe. Otherwise, she is busy working on an adult science fantasy trilogy and two series of fantasy books for children. So, with that out of the way, let's head on in. Enjoy the story!
0: The Lady's Maid by Carly Hall Jensen Sometimes she wonders... About the girls whose heads her mistress wears. Sometimes, though not often, she wonders where they came from, who they loved. She wonders who, if anyone, keeps their memory now. Mostly though, she doesn't trouble herself. It is her lady's right to take what she desires. Everything is hers. As far as the eye can see, The mirrored sitting-room, And the marble statues in the courtyard, And the deer in the forest to the east, And the endless farmland, now fallow, To the west, all hers. Any passing milkmaid with a handsome head of curls, Any travelling fortune-teller, with changeable sea-green eyes. They're all hers, too, if she wishes it. This is the order of things. I think I'll wear number five today, the lady announces, when the little maid brings her breakfast. At the moment, she's wearing number six, whose palette, she says, is especially sensitive. She luxuriates in her meal, her tongue awake to the sweet woody strawberries, the thick cream. When the little maid summons her to a bath, she sinks further back into the pillows and must be coaxed into the hot turquoise water like a child. The maid scrubs her back, moving the cloth, In rough circles between her shoulder blades, along her arms, her clavicle, her breasts. She avoids the long pink line across her lady's throat, tries not even to look at it. Instead, she guides her cloth under her lady's arms to scrub at her thin wiry hair, and then down her sides, where she can feel her lady's breathing rise and fall. When the cloth dips down low over her belly, the lady's hips give a little jerk before she settles back again. Steam rises around them, white. When her lady is clean, the maid helps her into her white gossamer dressing gown and they go together into the sitting-room, where her heads are kept. They rest on velvet pedestals, inside identical, jewel-encrusted cabinets, thirty in all, one for every day of the month, every hour, a head for every whim. The heads look on with mild interest. Their eyes seem to follow one around the room. The lady waits as the little maid unlocks the doors to cabinets five and six. Then, placing her hands on either side of the lady's jaw, she lifts the head from her shoulders. There is a little resistance. A pull from a body that wants to remain whole and then the head comes off. It blinks dully at her as she replaces it on its velvet perch. She takes great care handling number five, cautious not to drop it. It happened only once, a long, uneasy moment in which her mistress stood as if suspended, while the maid scrabbled to retrieve the fallen head. Headless, her mistress became a sort of absence, perceiving nothing, not silence, not even the dark. It makes the maid queasy to think of it. Since then, she has been exceptionally careful. When the maid lowers the head onto her neck, the lady reaches up to feel that it's on straight. Once she's dressed, the high collar of her gown will hide the seam where the head is joined to her neck. She appears whole to any untrained eye of a single unbroken piece. But the little maid knows better. It is one of the maid's jobs to look after the girls, whose heads her mistress takes. The lady keeps them prisoner for weeks, sometimes months. But she does not treat them like ordinary prisoners. There are no manacles, so their tender skin will not chafe and scar. They sleep on satin sheets, on pillows stuffed with goose down. They eat the choicest cuts of meat, the freshest fruits. They are bathed daily in sweet water with fragrant oil. All this the maid does, tending to them until her mistress deems them ready. Ready for what? The little maid does not consider. She knows what the end result is. She is not naive but she remains ignorant of what exactly transpires between the moment she drops a shivering girl off at her mistress's door and the moment a new head appears behind jeweled glass. She does not care to know. She doesn't have much time for sympathy and only a very little time for fear. Every morning she rises at dawn. She must sweep the courtyard and scrub the marble stairs, polish the silver floors and mirrored walls of her mistress's sitting-room. She must wash and press her lady's linens, air the rooms, fix the breakfast, run her bath. She must help the lady assemble herself and dress. She must make the bed. Before long, there is luncheon to prepare, then there are books to be placed back on the shelves, and the harp to restring. Its gut warps in the changeable atmosphere and must be switched out frequently. To combat the draught, she stokes fires, fills braziers, she washes dishes, lights lamps, serves dinner, helps her lady to bed. By the time she wakes the next day, all her hard work has been cancelled and must be done again. She hasn't any time to spare lying awake, worrying over those girls' stranded heads. Besides, there's no sense borrowing trouble. Her mistress doesn't lose sleep over it, so why should she? Sometimes, though, she does grow curious—not often, but in still moments, lulls between tasks, while the dough is rising, or as she waits for the iron to heat up, she does wonder. Sometimes, as she's tending to her mistress, or cleaning the crystal panes in those glittering cabinets, she will notice some small imperfection a pockmark a scar that tells a story she will never know since she cannot ask she invents for instance the lady's habitual tuesday afternoon skin like buttermilk and hair the color of whey her eyes are a gray so light they seem almost clear. This one, the maid remembers, did not weep or beg like most girls do. She watched silently as the maid locked the door behind her. She watches silently, even still. Her mistress says she is ahead for quiet contemplation. She was a pragmatist, that one. She had no hope of escape, did not even entertain the thought. Even as she longed for home, she never forgot that suppers there were meagre and often burned, or that her mother could always be relied on to criticise the way she swept the hearth. No rosy retrospective for her, but still, she did miss the apricot trees that grew beside the rubbish heap in the back garden and the kitchen table where, in the evenings, after all the piecework had been set aside, she would read the paper by the light of a foul-smelling lamp. She knew the only people who take recourse in nostalgia are those who have no hope for the future. She was one of those now, she reasoned. She had earned the right. It was, for her, a kind of leave-taking. There was not, after all, so very much to miss. She was young, had lived only a little. She'd never travelled outside the city, never planned to. She worked and read and slept. And on Sundays, occasionally, would go to the museum to look at the statues of famous dead people carved from precious jade. They were polished to such a fine finish that when she leaned forward she could see her own reflection in their cheeks, and she had the urge sometimes to brush her fingers along their soft green faces, as if her touch could bring them back to life. No one ever touched her. There was no lover to pine for her, or stage a rescue. Her mother would be grateful a little for one less mouth to feed. Hers was a life, neat, compact, easily dispatched. She walked evenly towards her death never stumbled kept her back straight when the little maid came to collect her for the last time she did not tremble she let herself be bathed and then laid out fresh as a new cloud cirrus maybe something thin and skeptical casting little shade Hers was the twenty-ninth head in the collection, almost a round number, but not quite. She keeps nicely behind glass, suits the lady well. The mistress favours her. Others in the cabinet are not so versatile. For instance, girlish dimpled number twelve is ill-suited to serious conversations. And number twenty-five has weak eyes and is unfit for reading. The red head, number eighteen, is inconvenient for days when there is wind or rain. The weather wreaks havoc on her spill of wiry curls. Rain is a constant irritation. Water pours in through the roof when it storms. "'The wind plays the palace like a flute. "'On the wettest nights the fires will not light at all, "'and they are kept awake by the tap-tap "'of water dripping down the walls. "'On such nights her mistress curses the maid for a fool. "'She's worthless, worthless, no use at all. "'If she weren't so hopelessly plain,' Her mistress likes to say she would have taken the little maid's head long ago. But alas, there's no promise in her at all. No mystery, no spark of light. There's not even any chance she might improve with time, as some girls do. This, the maid counts as a small mercy. She does not mind her ugliness. Not not ugliness, even. Only a lack of beauty, beauty she can live without. Beauty would do her little good when she's up all hours, bailing out the cellars or changing the buckets that catch the leaks in the great hall. When she finally drifts off to sleep, it is the noise of the birds that roost in the rafters and the little unseen creatures that make nests in the walls. Shredding old books and draperies at their beds. The palace was beautiful once. The entire kingdom a lush green jewel. Some might see the decline of this once great land as a tragedy. They might mourn the mildewed portraits in the great hall and the dead leaves drift in through the broken windows of the ballroom. They might curse the last living heir for running the country into the ground, for abandoning her people. Not the little maid, though. It's not loyalty that stays her judgment. There was a boy once a mealy-complexioned shopkeeper's assistant who begged the maid to run away with him. This was years ago, when people were first starting to flee the city. She laughed at him. Where would we go? she asked. To some city where you'll still be a shop boy and I'll still be a maid. He promised they would make a new life together. When she refused, his expression grew cold, and she saw his regard for her turn to hate. Before he left, he spread a rumour that she was in love with her mistress, and let her practice untold depravities upon her in the privacy of her lady's sitting-room. She has known servants who let themselves become enamoured of those they served who dwelt on their master's commands like a lover's tender words, and she felt only disdain for them. She harbours no great admiration for her mistress, but she understands what that wretched shop-boy and all the people who left the city never did. Though the lady is no prize regent, her predecessors were no better. The kings and empresses of other lands are the same too. Who wears the crown makes no difference. The order of things will not change. No matter where one goes, the little maid will still be here emptying chamber pots. Nevertheless, she cannot deny that her lady is cruel to her at times. Her temperament fluctuates, depending on which head she wears. Number seven is morose and sour, quick to criticise. Freckled number nine brings with her more joyful attitudes, sometimes even singing. Sometimes little maid wonders where her mistress ends and those other girls begin. When the lady scolds her, for scolding her warm milk on winter evenings. Is it her? Or sharp-tongued number seventeen? Whose dreams twitch her eyelids in the night? Perhaps even the lady herself doesn't know. The longer the lady goes without a new conquest, The more irritable she gets. The last one, number thirty, was the daughter of a travelling salesman, plump and brown and sweet, in a simple-minded way. She didn't see what was coming, even up until the very last. The maid knows how to weather her mistress's ill-humours. Days when nothing is quite exactly right. Every hairpin's too heavy. The collar of every gown too tight against her throat. On days like this, some restless energy lodges itself under the lady's skin, and she can only exercise it by taking it out on whatever is closest at hand. These are the days crockery is smashed and layers of tulle are torn from petticoats. The best thing... The maid can do is stay out of the way until the lady tires herself out. They've been having more and more days like this of late. It's been a very long time since her mistress took her last head. The maid is taking down the drapes in the upstairs corridor when she hears her lady's voice. Hesitating on her stepladder, she listens, wondering who her mistress could be talking to. Could some secret emissary have slipped into the palace without her noticing? Abandoning the curtains, the little maid climbs down from her ladder and follows the imperious rise and fall of her lady's voice. Carefully, carefully, she eases open the sitting room door to see her lady pacing the shining floor, muttering a stream of vengeful invective. There's no visitor at all. She's speaking to the heads. As the maid watches, her lady whirls around, addressing herself to her silent heads at first berating them, then imploring them. She scolds and wheedles by turn, deeply involved in an argument, the thread of which the maid cannot follow. She shakes her finger accusingly at number eight, whose dark hair is a soft fog against her dusky cheeks. The heads watch impassively, as they always do. They look, the maid thinks, almost bemused by the lady's anger. She is jealous of them all, the maid realises. As much as she desires them, she hates them too. Her lovely heads are divorced from life, but not from history. How many years have they lived without her? Years and years The lady will never know anything about. It must eat at her, the maid thinks. How did number eleven get the scar above her left eyebrow? Who kissed the purple birthmark at the edge of number twelve's jaw? She possesses every inch of them. Each crease at the corner of their eyes is hers. Each one of their crooked teeth. Every freckle, every mole, every old acne scar is hers, every eyelash, every strand of hair. They belong to her, every bit of them, except the past, the only part of them she can never have. When next... She is alone in the sitting-room. The maid finds herself thinking of her mistress's conversation with her heads. As she wipes down the crystal panes of their cases, she wonders, what would they say if they could speak? Number 23, perhaps. I was a schoolgirl in love with running down hills. When I got to the bottom, I would spread my arms, exhilarated, embracing the air. I ran and ran, but I could not run from you. Or, number thirteen, I was a dancer of some modest promise, but one of my legs was slightly shorter than the other, and I never would have amounted to much. So perhaps it's better I'm here in the end or dark doe-eyed number three. I had a twin brother who bit people like a dog, and when they sent him away I was so very much alone. But now I'm not alone, now I have you. The heads do not move much when they are not on the lady's shoulders, except for their drifting gaze. For sometimes their mouths do make lax, mute shapes, the phantom echoes of speech. Their eyes widen and their lips gape, and the maid knows they're not really pleading with her. But she still has to look away. Do you know any card games, her lady asks, while the maid is dressing her hair. This morning has been a struggle to find the right fit. Number eight's eyes too dark, number sixteen's voice too high, until at last the maid settled on number four. This one's scalp is sensitive, almost obscenely tender, and her thoughts are quick-moving and sharp, excellent for games of strategy. The maid's eyes go wide. Me, my lady? Even your company must be preferable to sitting in silence polishing one's nails. The simple fact is there's no one else to ask. It has been such a long time since anyone has come for an audience. Not even a lost shepherd or a passing tradesman. Gone are the days of grand banquets and dancing into early hours of the morning. Gone are the days of conversing with anyone but each other. The only games I know are ones to play alone, my lady, says the maid. Her mistress lets out a sharp sigh. What good are you, then? The maid can see the lady's fingers curl. "'Her knuckles pale. "'Get out!' her mistress snaps, "'rising from her vanity. "'But, my lady, your hair, "'the maid, barely has time to back away "'before the lady storms into the sitting-room, "'slamming the door shut behind her. "'She can hear her raging around, "'her heavy footfalls, "'her raised voice, "'the bright shatter of glass. "'Sometimes the maid wishes,' a caravan of eligible young damsels would appear, just to give her mistress something to do. But she knows that, short of producing some lovely long-haired maiden out of thin air, all she can do is wait for her lady's fury to pass. As the maid is leaving, there's another crash from the sitting-room, followed by a damp thud. The maid shivers at the sound of a head hitting the floor. She hesitates at the door. She ought not to leave her mistress alone this way, she thinks. Without a head, she's nothing, only an absent body. On Cat's feet, the little maid crosses to the threshold of the sitting room and presses her ear to the door. It's silent in the other room. So she slips inside, making herself as small and unobtrusive as possible. Her mistress is standing, headless, in the middle of a spray of broken glass. There's a smear of blood under one of her bare feet, and inside the shattered case, Number 19's cheeks are flecked with tiny cuts. The head the lady had been wearing, the maid sees, has rolled under the divan. Her mistress stands numb, her arms limp at her sides, swaying slightly on her feet. The sight of her, inert and empty as she is, sends a shudder through the little maid. Gently she takes her mistress by the arm, and guides her away from the shattered cabinet. The lady follows her across the glittering floor, moving with the slow, shuffling steps of a sleepwalker. She sinks down, when the maid urges her to, onto the divan, and stays there, unmoving. The little maid knows she should pick up number four, and brush the stray shards of crystal from its delicate hair. She knows she should find the broom and sweep up this mess. she retrieve some warm water and clean the wound on the lady's foot. Instead, she stands there staring at her mistress, who sits before her so obedient and still. From this vantage point, standing above her, the little maid has a clear view of the lady's severed neck. Ordinarily, she tries not to look at it. Somehow, it's more intimate even than the lady's naked body. But today, she finds herself transfixed by the sight. How bare she is! Her flesh is raw pink, a colour that should never be exposed to the air. Her windpipe and esophagus and carotid artery are slit cleanly open, and she can see the pale cord of the lady's spinal column emerging from one of her vertebrae. The maid's stomach flips and her breath goes quick. Her lady's chest, however, lifts only faintly, a barely perceptible movement. Mesmerised, the little maid lifts her hand to the white rim of her lady's windpipe. She can feel her mistress's breath as a delicate trickle of warm air. She traces her fingertips along the edge of her windpipe, like someone pulling music from a glass. She almost expects to hear a melody. Her mistress, meanwhile, has not moved. Her stillness emboldens the maid. She tips the tip of her index finger into the lady's oesophagus, the walls of her throat. A spongy and slick, and when she probes deeper, the lady's muscles contract, swallowing around her. Shocked, the maid withdraws her fingers. She's shivering, she realises, her blood awake. The power of her position stuns her. How dizzying to think this has always been possible, if only it had occurred to her. She can do anything she wants to her mistress. How could the lady stop her? How would she even know? Unable to resist, she reaches out again and touches one fingertip to the lady's spine. The sensation is like small lightning running through her, and when she presses harder, the lady's whole body seizes flailing and convulsing under her. A strangled, gulping sound rises from the lady's seventh throat as the muscles of her neck clench and clench and clench. When the little maid withdraws, the connection is undone. The lady has slipped onto the floor where she lies twitching. As she recovers her breath, the little maid becomes aware of the weight thirty pairs of eyes on her, each one of the ladies' heads, watching her with the same inscrutable expression. For the first time in many years, Little maid tries to imagine leaving the palace. When the other servants began to flee, she did not once consider deserting her mistress. She scoffed when they talked about their plans to leave service and become seamstresses or singers or bank clerks. She knew she would be no better off somewhere else. She'd be no different in another city, in another great house. Even now, she cannot quite dare imagine leaving her mistress's employ but she does find herself imagining the palace without her in it. Who would wash the ladies' gauzy dresses? Who would hang them out with silver clothes pins? Who would dump basins of spent water out in the back courtyard and watch the soap-suds thread across the stones? She's heard of certain castles in which the housework performs itself, by virtue of some enchantment or other. It is said that invisible hands open doors, and launder clothes, not a servant in sight. The little maid longs, suddenly, violently, for such a spell to be cast on her, if only she could be turned into empty air. From the high window of the little maid's garret room, she can see in all directions. At dawn, when she wakes, she can see the sun climbing out of the ocean and over the forest, and by the time she finally drops into bed at night, the sun has set over the farmland to the west. It used to be that she could see cows moving in their pastures. And little white clouds of sheep. And on early autumn evenings, those fields were dotted with the lantern lights of farmers mowing hay well into the night. Now, even the steep mountains to the north, where goats would sometimes ramble, are empty. The farmers and their livestock and their scythes are gone. She knows not where. To other cities, may be, where the roads do not lie mired in dust and the roofs of grand palaces are not falling in. This morning, when the little maid pulls back her curtains, she thinks she can make out a dark cluster of shapes making their way through the forest. She stands, watching for a moment, as the distant figures advance along the road. She reckons they're at least a day's journey away. The thought that they might be on their way to the palace fills her with dread. With any luck they will take a wrong turn and lose themselves in the woods. Perhaps they will pass right by without even stopping. As she watches, the travelling party turns a corner, and disappears under the cover of the trees. On the horizon, the sun dazzles against the blank, green-grey sea. She's made herself late, gazing out the window, as if she has time to be staring at the scenery. She hurries downstairs to stoke the kitchen fires, and draw water from the well, and scrub the tables and sharpen the knives, If she isn't quick about it, she'll be late with her mistress's breakfast. When breakfast is ready, she balances the tray before her and climbs the stairs carefully, so as not to spill any precious milk or upset the delicate arrangement of the rolls. She finds her mistress still lying in her crystal bed, the covers tangled around her. The lady's head, she notices with a shock, is lying next to her on the pillow, quite unattached to her body. Its gaze drifts towards her, eyebrows raised. The maid sets down the breakfast tray without realising she's done it. She feels numb, almost unmoored, and yet she realises... She's shivering with anticipation. She knows, even before she sinks down onto the bed, what she's going to do. Surely it will not be the same, she thinks. And yet, as soon as she touches her fingers to that raw wound, the same heat swells and unfurls inside her. She delves further into the wet pink flesh of her lady's neck than she dared to go before, savouring the way her mistress's hips kick and her limbs shake when she touches the bare nerve of her spine. She does it again and again transfixed until sweat soaks the sheets and her lady's limbs are too weak even to twitch. Afterwards, She washes the lady's limbs with a cool damp cloth, her thighs are satin soft, and her toes curl by reflex when the maid touches her sensitive arch, then chooses a new head for the lady to wear today. Number seventeen is her mistress's favourite. She loves the tangling pile of glossy black waves, the clever almond eyes the pale constellation of freckles across the high cheekbones. The maid remembers this one well. She was the imperious daughter of a new money nobleman, some merchant who lucked into an advantageous marriage, an insignificant title and just enough money to spoil his favourite child and throw his weight around in town. This girl grew up with every comfort imaginable, Her every whim catered to, without hesitation. Perhaps her mother's mouth sometimes pressed thin with disapproval at her husband's extravagance. But nothing was too good for his only girl. She never needed to lift a finger. Had servants who tended to her every need. Dozens and dozens of servants, the maid thinks remembering the old days. The girl excelled at every art and virtue. Her flower arrangements were the envy of every lady in the country, and when she played the glass harmonica for her father's assembled dinner guests, there was not a single one who did not weep for the beauty of her compositions. She had countless suitors, all of whom she refused. Several threw themselves to their deaths, for want of her love, and when she heard of one's demise, she would laugh in delight. Her cruelty was bred of a desperate boredom. Each task she turned herself to was facile, disappointing. No one was good enough for her, nothing enough to satisfy her. Nothing, until she became a member of the ladies' court. As the lady later told the maid, she knew the moment she saw the girl, on a visit to the palace with her father, that she would have to have her. It was all too simple to invite the girl to join her royal retinue and invent a reason for her to come into the lady's private chambers one night. The maid still remembers leading her down the corridor to her mistress's rooms. "'how she treated the maid as her own servant "'and spoke of the palace as if it were her own. "'The little maid was not sorry "'when the door finally closed on that one. "'Now she brings number seventeen back to the lady's bed "'and eases her body upright "'so that she can position the head on her neck. "'Finally, Her mistress comes alive, stretching, as if she's just awakened from a delicious sleep. The lady does not seem to notice that the milk is slopped over the edge of its saucer, or that the rolls have grown tough, or, if she does notice, she does not care to mention it. This kindness frightens the little maid more than her former violence. In the past, she's always known what to expect. She knew, for instance, that her mistress would scorn clotted cream, that she would criticise the way the pleats on her favourite white gown were ironed, that she would tell her off for being even a minute late with her supper tray. Now, She does not know what will come next. It seems the thought fills her with an airless, floating sensation that anything could happen. Out of instinct, she spends the rest of the day trying to avoid her lady's notice, keeping to the edges of the room, never lingering longer in her presence than need be. She goes about her chores with as little noise as possible, so as not even to remind her mistress she exists. She sweeps the steps and washes the windows and twirls the cobwebs out of the high corners of the ceiling with a cloth tied to a long pole. She puts away the morning's clean dishes and polishes the evening's silver, then goes out to tend to the kitchen garden. Then she sits down at the table by the hearth, and doesn't move until the kitchen has fallen into shadow. It's almost evening, and she hasn't even started supper. There's no time to make the meal she was planning to prepare. But instead of springing to her feet to invent some alternative, she sits there at the trestle table. Examining the rough skin around her nail beds. How easily her finger slipped inside her lady's body. How sweetly her mistress responded to her touch. She's startled when someone knocks at the side door. It's been so long since anyone has come to call that she hardly recognised the sound. She recalls the little travelling party. She saw from her window this morning. They've made better time than she expected. They are a motley party, standing on the stoop, this thin little girl and her two companions. When the girl asks to see the lady of the house, the maid's stomach lurches. Standing there on the threshold, the little maid assesses the girl in front of her. Yes. She could be the lady's next, number thirty-one, a prime number, indivisible. She's not much to look at now, not beautiful, but she has promise. Perhaps the lady will keep this one a while, let her grow up a little. If she's spared from the sun for a few years, her skin will go milk-white. It's not as if the girl will be missed. From her homely hairstyle and her plain sack dress, it's obvious she's an orphan. Perhaps the burdensome ward of some aged aunt or uncle. Just another pair of hands on the farm. Her palms are rough, calloused from outdoor work. She milks the cows and collects the eggs before she goes to school in the morning and then comes home and helps with the laundry and the cooking. Her people, if she has any, will find someone else to help out around the house once she's gone. Another girl who doesn't drag her feet and lean against the fence daydreaming when she should be doing chores. What does this girl dream of? The maid wonders as she idles away the oppressive late afternoon hours. Perhaps she stares out at the sky, stretched endlessly over the horizon, and thinks of the way it turns dark green and dangerous, of the way it lifts houses from their foundations and tosses them into the air. Perhaps she would like to be lifted, too, transported somewhere far away. Perhaps, thinks the maid, she'll will get her wish. After all, she's very far from home. Bobbing a curtsy, she tells the girl and her retinue to wait, and goes to inform her mistress of their arrival. As she makes her way down the winding passage and climbs the marble stairs, the little maid finds herself wishing once again, that the visitors had not decided to stop. Maybe, she thinks, they will be gone when she returns. Perhaps they will change their minds about staying here. One of them might even remember some long-forgotten story they heard about an old abandoned palace and its beautiful occupant who wears the heads of girls who come to call. Or... Perhaps her mistress will not wish to see them. Though even as she thinks it, the little maid knows this is too much to hope for. No matter how many heads she has, no matter how lovely they are, her mistress will always want more. It occurs to her that she need not tell her mistress about these visitors at all. This is something she's never considered before, "'and the idea brings her up short. "'Yes,' she thinks. "'She could easily go back to the girl and her friends "'and tell them the lady is not at home to visit us. "'They might leave without her mistress ever knowing they were here, "'and things will be just as they have been for so long, "'just the maid and her mistress alone in the palace. "'Of course,' she thinks resuming her progress up the stairs. Her mistress's moods will grow worse and worse, and there will be no one else to bear the brunt of her ill temper. But on the other hand, who would stop her if she were to remove her lady's head altogether? She could lead her mistress around the palace by the hand, her headless neck exposed to the air. She could do anything she liked. She hovers in front of the door to her lady's chamber, considering she could do it. It could be done. Don't think I can't hear you out there, her mistress snaps at her from within. Number seventeen's hearing is uncommonly acute. As if I haven't noticed you skulking about all day. Come in if you're going to come in, but don't keep me waiting. The little maid follows the sound of her mistress's voice into the sitting room. She stands in the middle of the silver floor, surrounded by her many heads in their glittering cabinets, looking at herself in a hand mirror. She examines every angle of her face and runs her fingers through her silken black hair. She glances over her shoulder at her maid. Well, the little maid thinks of the unwitting girl waiting downstairs. She thinks of all the other lovely, doomed maidens she's led to their deaths at her mistress's behest. She thinks of the pale white, of her lady's spine, of the flushed pink, of her exposed muscle. It could be just the two of them, she thinks, her heart beating fast. While the lady admires herself, in the mirror, her other heads look on expectantly, their eyes like trailing stars.
1: Welcome back! I don't know about you, but the headless neck scenes really creeped me out. The parts where the protagonist plays with the lady's esophagus and spinal cord made me feel all kinds of squeamish. Yes, I am a wimp. What I truly loved about this story, though, is how we start out feeling badly for the maid and her unfortunate life of servitude, but by the end, she's just as creepy and messed up as her employer. It just goes to show, sometimes when you ask why someone would stay in a situation like that, you might not like the answer. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 382, of Blood and Brine by Megan O'Keefe, read by Jackie Duckworth. The responses to the story were generally quite positive. Leet Minion said, Perfume as villain monologue. I thought that the scene at the shore did a particularly amazing job of setting up that association between the sea and death in the context of the story's setting. All in all, a gruesome tale where the main character's price of securing her freedom and survival is becoming complicit in an act of bloody revenge. J.T. Evans said, This story gripped me from the start, slowed down a bit in the middle parts, but really ramped up at the end for a satisfying conclusion. The world building was fantastic, and this generally leads me to desire longer works in the world. However, for this go round, I was quite happy with the length of the work. I guess part of that comes from the fact that I don't have a good sense of smell, so I'm not sure I could easily identify or relate to the various smells, other than coffee, given in the story. There was also more discussion of the potential pitfalls of a world in which recognition of sense is necessary to know who you're talking to. Father Beast said, In the world of this story, where a person's name can be potentially offensive, it makes me sad that there would be some people who I would refuse to be around simply because of their name, and not for any personality trait. I feel you, Father Beast. Strong smells and allergies get to me too. I'd probably just end up sneezing on everyone in this world, which would do wonders for my popularity, I'm sure. Thank you for those comments. Come let us know what you thought of this story at forum.escapeartists.net. Also, if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't donate, well, just tell all your friends about us. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, our slushers, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Melissa Hofflick, Jennifer Albert, and Khalida Muhammad Ali, our audio producer, Peter Wood, our forum moderators, Talia and Osakat, our editors, Graham Dunlop, and Rachel K. Jones, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another story. Until then, this is Keffy Curly for PodCastle, reminding you to feed the dog. If you're frowning because you don't think you have a dog, well, <laughs> uh, please unwrap the present I sent you sooner rather than later. I leave you with a quote that is frequently misattributed to Oscar Wilde but, and this shouldn't be too surprising since he's rarely so nice was probably originally written by some anonymous ad copywriter in the early 2000s. Be yourself. Everyone else is taken.